Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm very excited about today's episode. Today's guest is an innovative business operations change manager with nearly a decade of hands-on experience as an entrusted advisor to stakeholders. He's currently the organizational change management lead at Carlisle Interconnect Technologies. Please welcome to the show, Trent Okers. Hello, Trent. Hey, Justin. How's it going? Really well, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Um, our guests don't get to hear the uh, the prep call that you and I had before, but I know we've got a couple of great topics that I'm really looking forward to covering with you. Um, but before we get into that, I want to ask the same question that we always start the show with, which is what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today? I think it's pretty similar to what we all face working remotely is that's connection, but they've they've dealt with it a lot longer than we have. So the, the human connection, I think, really helps people learn, helps them grow. So the struggle has always been, how can you, as a remote individual, connect back to those who are trying to help you or connect with those that you just want to have a personal relationship with? Because that's one of the joys of work behind all that we do every day is making human connections. So what I saw is people, when they're working remotely, is they want to discuss thoughts, they want to discuss family and really taking time out of what could be a regular business call to establish that relationship is a big challenge and, and important thing that needs to be done. So the connection, they have almost have a better connection with customers than they do with their own company. So how can you make them feel a part of the company culture being remote? I think that's one of the largest challenges. Yeah. Do you think, um, it's interesting you say that we, we've talked about this a few times lately about the impact of, you know, teams and zoom. I know for, you know, us knowledge workers that spend our time at a desk or working from home today, our schedule seem to be 30 minute and, and 60 minute blocks of teams and zoom calls, you know, throughout the entire schedule. And I've noticed for, for us, that means that there's very little time in between for kind of chit chat. And I, I wonder how that's affecting the men and women that are out on the front lines. Um, and if they're feeling some of that same restraint or constraint, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they probably are, because you take into the fact that sometimes they have regular meetings, but they also have customer calls. Because yeah. even though we've got a desk, I mean, their lifeline is their mobile phone, so they're always taking calls while they're driving. Then they get off for meetings, and then oh yeah, I got to do the regular job or say doing a roof repair or doing an install. I think they probably feel a, a pinch more than we do. Yeah. And less time to connect, more time to work, or at least to take calls and all those different things along the road. Yeah. I think so too. I think, I don't know if we've figured out exactly what the solution is to that yet. Although there's, there's probably a case to be made for scheduling some time to talk about mm -hmm. things other than work. I, I actually had a podcast guest earlier today uh, who talked about actually doing just that. She actually set up something with her team where every single day throughout the year, she, she posed a question to the team that had absolutely nothing to do with work whatsoever. 
uh, just to stimulate conversation about something other than, you know, what are we talking about in the Teams or Zoom call today? I thought that was a pretty neat idea um, just to kind of remind us that we all have a life outside of, you know, work orders and customer inventory. Sure. I think one thing we did back in my old position is we had regular regional conferences and, and time for the different field service reps to come and meet together whether it be quarterly and even actually on an annual basis, bring everybody from across the country together. And that actually provided them a great opportunity to bond and talk about difficulties that they face from their peers, which that, you know, us desk workers can't necessarily relate to. So giving them a chance to blow off steam with some of their peers was really helpful in what we did with our mobile workforce as well. Yeah. I bet those guys were making fun of all the knowledge workers too, when they were together. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely were like, why are you guys wearing slacks, wine, wearing <laughs> jeans, stuff like that. You normally you hear that coming through, but, but they had perfect. a good time and big investment in money, but it really paid off in connecting our, our uh, workforce. Cause then they could call each other and talk about difficulties that they're dealing with as well as situations that maybe the IT guy wasn't available to help them with. So yeah, uh, creating that peer connection is also a huge benefit to them. I think that's a, a great example. And I, I know the investment in, in doing that is, is huge, but um, it's, it's got to have huge returns on the backside by fostering those, uh, that network of relationships, especially with people that are as remote as, uh, you know, many field service teams are. So I, I want to shift in and give the audience some um, perspective uh, about you and your background. So let's, let's learn a little bit about you. So how did you end up in the role that you're in today? And, and tell us a little bit about that journey. Uh, so I have two, I guess, two professional lives thus far. I would call it one's focused on business, one's focused on education. I have a degree in teaching and a degree in business. And change management has kind of been a great fusion of the two, because what I really focus on right now is helping people learn the skills and abilities they need to perform their jobs efficiently and expertly. So taking my life as a teacher and pulling that into what I do as a professional has been very rewarding for me, but also focusing on some of those key points of being a teacher is developing students for a life that is better and giving them knowledge. So that has kind of been my way of, I guess I was naturally drawn toward it. I learned supply chain while I was in uh, business school, but I always felt drawn toward teaching people because I felt it was a way to help them. And I'm kind of an altruistic person. I like to help where I can, certainly not Mahatma Gandhi or anything like that, but I, I like to help people as I can. And so when I draw the fact that I'm trying to help people and teach them and make them learn uh, to things that are better, that, that has drawn me toward change management because I really feel like I'm a professional cheerleader, professional psychologist, often helping people face something difficult that they're trying to implement. Tell me about the, your uh, teaching background. What kind of education were you doing? Well, geography teaching in the secondary education world in the high school and middle school. And because geography, I just love traveling. I love meeting and experiencing different cultures, meeting different people. So geography was just a passion that I had. And it kind of related to remote workforce because I love talking with the guys on the phone because they were all over the place. You get to hear about different festivals, different foods. So I guess in a lot of ways, my, my, uh, my connection with the remote workforce was an extension of my love for geography in general. What led you away from teaching to want to shift focus and, and get into the business side of the world? Well, I have five kids. So and generally speaking, uh, having to provide for them was not an option as teaching as well as I wanted. So moving toward business was more of a practical, a practical move just to support the family. 
Uh, I guess don't tell my boss that, but he might hear, listen to this. We'll see. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I, I, that's a, that's a very practical answer. I think there's, um, we are actually just talking about this in the last meeting I was in before I walked in to, to get on this podcast with you, um, that we've actually had a lot of applicants from, uh, teaching for several job roles, um, several of which have absolutely nothing to do with education whatsoever. So I think there's, um, I, I think post pandemic, we're seeing kind of a big exodus. Now I know you made that switch long before the pandemic, but it's, it's interesting to see. I, I do think that there's a mass exodus coming out of, um, at least K through 12 education right now. And I think they've had a pretty rough time over the last two years. And I think for some practical reasons of income and, and just better, you know, uh, work, uh, experience and things like that, that there's a, a big push to, for those folks to come into the business world. Oh, they're, they're a type of frontline worker, the teacher, you know, they're dealing with similar, similar situations as mobile workforce. They're never at the desk. They have to deal with changes on the fly as they're dealing with customers every day, right in front of them. And I think there's a, there's a huge draw or a huge um, parallel that can be made between a frontline worker and a teacher dealing with the impacts of a pandemic. I mean, they have a lot of demands on their time, similar to those of a, you know, a remote workforce that's actually in a truck or moving around. So yeah. Definitely another frontline worker. My wife was a uh, junior high school teacher in special ed uh, here in the Dallas area. And I, I've just always said this, listening to her stories, I, I could not have done that job for half of one day. I, I, I just, I just think it takes a special person to, to be able to do that and to be able to do it well is, is even more amazing. Um, but I do think during the pandemic, I think, uh, you know, teaching community has really had a, a pretty tough hand to, to deal with. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me at all that there's, there's been the exodus. Of course, I'm curious to see kind of how that shakes out from a, you know, societal perspective over the next couple of years, because we we're still going to need teachers just like we did before. So hopefully there'll be some, some shifting. And when the music turns off, hopefully there'll still be enough people sitting in the teacher chairs. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there yeah. will be. So, so let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning. When we talked about um, the, the biggest challenge, you know, facing the deskless workforce, you talked about your perspective being connection, like that, that human connection between individuals, particularly for those folks that are remote and in frontline positions. I'm, I'm always curious to see if we were to maybe take some of the frontline workers you're thinking about and bring them into a room and ask them that same question. Would they say the same thing or would they perceive things differently? You know, I think it's an interesting question and it kind of goes back to the fact that I feel most of the remote workers that I dealt with that were on the front lines were very independent people, you know, kind of the MacGyvers of their trade. They had to deal with the customers at a, at a very close level. And then they were told to do things that they didn't necessarily connect all the time with the work they were doing. And if they had questions because they were so independent, some of them didn't necessarily like bringing up the fact, well, I don't understand this because it makes me feel like I'm not good at my job. Like I don't know what I'm doing. So how do you take that person to MacGyver doesn't necessarily want to demonstrate I need a human connection or feels like I can do it on my own because I've always been doing it on my own. And that's why I feel the human connection because if you watch them look across the departments, they would call certain people in our, in our warranty services group because that's part of what I worked for or worked with as a, as a change management uh, lead in the uh, Carlisle Construction Materials. I worked with field service reps and they were out doing roof repairs and investigating things. But they always seem to draw or, or hone up with someone that they felt they could trust. And then that was a person that could be like, hey, I don't really understand this. Can you help me get to that? So how do you treat a MacGyver 
who's very intelligent, very smart, very hardworking. How, how do you tell them, well, you need to, you need to learn this to make your job better, even though, hey, I'm a guy sitting in an office telling you that this technology or whatever process can improve your output. It can be almost like an insult. So you need to have this personal, personal connection, like I said, to really help guide them to the point where they understand, hey, well, there's a benefit to that. And maybe it's even perhaps my idea. You know, can you convince them it's their idea rather than your idea? Can you really get them on board? It takes a personal friendship in many ways. Otherwise, you're fighting it all the way. So what are some things you can do to show them you're their friend? Well, the way I did with it, I went and trained in their jobs. I passed the certification to be a field service rep. It took me like, I don't know, three months to learn all the different specifications of a roof. And they were out there training with me. And that really helped my job because they saw that, hey, I've gone through the same tests you went through. And I've been out there with you on a roof and we talk about old jobs. So I think that was a really big help for me is making that personal goal to to meet some of the same qualifications they needed uh, to do their job. Was I anywhere near what they were at? No, I wasn't as good, but I went through the pain of the test. So it, it made that connection to help me relate to them. And I brought that up all the time in our meetings. Hey, I've tested as well as you have. It's a tough deal. You guys are smart, amazing, things like that. And so again, that's, like I said, that personal connection was really helpful. I, I think that's an amazing example and kudos to you for, for going through that added effort and kudos to your company for, for supporting you going through that. Uh, I think that's a, a fantastic way to establish, you know, credibility with a workforce where I think the barrier to entry for that credibility is very high. You know, mm-hmm. they, um, at least in my experience, you know, many of the men and women in, in these types of roles, especially in field service, I think, um, they place a high value on tenure because the guys that have the most tenure have seen the most things <laughs> they've seen the most circumstances. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's a, it's a pretty high bar to, to reach. So for you to go through the, you know, submit yourself to that same level of certification, I think it's fantastic. And also, it sounds like you brought some humility to that conversation as well to say, Hey, listen, I got the cert. I'm not saying that I have 20 years of wisdom to back it up. You didn't say those words, but I, I get the impression that's how you, you kind of positioned it with them. I can see that being a great combination to show that you've made an effort without um, making the assumption or the, you know, uh, suggesting that you have the, the same amount of wisdom as they do. <laughs> yeah. It gave me a lot of appreciation for just that, how much they had to know. They had to know without getting too far into details, a number of different systems, a number of different qualifications yeah. and specifications to do the job. And I feel like in a certain aspect, even the manufacturing world that I now work in changing from that field service spot, there are deskless manufacturing workers who have to be there at a machine and have to know very yeah. technically how to tweak those certain outputs or inputs to make the best output on, on the production floor. So I think wherever you're at, if you're a change manager or manager, appreciation for the technical, the technical aspect of someone's work, that can really help provide some sincerity and, and connection. One of my colleagues and, and the co-host of the show, Gene Signorini, said that, has often said that we really shouldn't delineate between knowledge workers and field workers because field workers are also knowledge workers. And, you know, that's a different way of saying what you just said that, that, that person that needs to be able to operate that machine and has 10 years of experience tweaking and and making that machine perform reliably and, and high at high performance the way that it needs to took many years, a lot of training, but also just on the job experience to learn how to do that. And that knowledge is critical. And it, it ties back with something else that you said, which I think is so important for this workforce, which is that um, 
by asking questions about things when we're they're dealing with change, it can, and I think the exact quote is, it makes me feel like I don't know my job, right? And I think that's a really powerful influencer when we're talking about change because we have, I've witnessed this firsthand. I've been in, in, in classroom training environments where I've seen a trainer ask, does anybody have any questions? No, nobody puts their hands up and everybody walks out of the room and 80% of the people don't really know what they need to know. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's not because the trainer wasn't effective, but I do think that there's a, a bit of a dynamic there where people don't necessarily want to raise their hand and acknowledge that they don't know something. And I think it comes from so much of their self-worth in their job as a you know profession is based on them knowing so much stuff, right? Is, is that, is, do you see it the same way or am I maybe missing even yet another angle on that? No, I think, I think they really do feel that way. They, I feel like they could just do it, but they always know they, as long as they've established a relationship with someone, they can find, um, can find the information they need. I'm thinking about going to a conference, having a training, having asked that same question. And does anybody have any questions? No one raises their hands. And then the next day, I see them calling the, uh, you know, the warranty services call center folks that they trust. And so it took a it took a minute for me to recognize that, and then say, well, because these people feel that way, they don't necessarily want to raise their hand in a group setting. They like the individual one-on-one -on -one connection. I had to help train some of the call center people to be able to ones to recognize, hey, they're going to call you later. Make sure you understand this. Communicate this message so we're all on the same page. And it was it was a group effort to have a coalition, you know, a coalition of educators, not just the person doing the frontline training, but a person that's going to be doing the, the reinforcement in the back end. And that's a really big part of change management is building a coalition of individuals who understand the key vision. And then support it through the number of interactions that they have, and emails and, and team meetings and one-on-one -on -one conversations at the, at the different levels that we have them. So I think that's one thing I've enjoyed about the change management principles I've learned is just you have to advocate for people to advocate your vision. It's not, you know what I mean? You're not just the only one selling what you want to be done. It's you have to get other people on board to communicate that same message so they can support um, the friends that are going to call them later and ask, well, hey, did you really appreciate that message. Do you think that's the process we need to do? Because you know that conversation is going to go. Oh no, those people had no idea what they were talking about. So yes, the more the more members you have on your side, the more the more uh, streamlined and more, I guess, a strengthened your message is by having those supporters. So change management, building coalitions is one key aspect of it, and that's really a lot. A lot of what I focus on today is, is that I have what I call change management roundup calls, where I've identified key supervisors key subject matter experts or change agents, people that have influence or functional expertise in, a, in an organization. I like to get them on a call and have them in a smaller group ask me questions because they're more willing to ask those questions in a one-on-one -on -one or closer to one-on-one -on -one conversation. So building a coalition was always key with those frontline workers. I think that's a, an amazingly great way to solve for that after that initial communication experience. But do you think there are are any ways that we can kind of head that off where, where we can actually have in the initial series of communications, more openness, like what can we do to break down that barrier so that they don't have to feel uncomfortable raising their hand and asking a question? Are there any solutions for that? Perhaps it's just having experience and wisdom uh, with them as a person. They'll be more comfortable with you the more time you spend. But research does show it takes a person five to seven messages to internalize 
a, a particular vision or a particular message. You know, something that ProSci teaches in what their what their ADCAR model is. So it's more messaging, perhaps, because it's always going to be questioned and never really going to sink in until you hear something a number of different times. It's like my children. I got to tell them over and over again to do certain things. <laughs> I think my wife would say the same thing about me. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for me, it's probably more like seven to 10 instead of five to seven, but we don't have to debate that here. Um, okay. That makes, that actually makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm kind of curious, just going back to the frontline workers and, and kind of talk about the pandemic. Do you think that, and I think in your case, you know, many of the frontline workers, I think in your realm today are probably folks in the manufacturing floor versus the field service technicians that you were working with, you know, previously, but, mm-hmm. but to all of those men and women, what do you think is going to remain different for them post pandemic? especially as we think about how a lot of the traditional desk bound workers like us are maybe doing their jobs remotely and things like that. Do you, do you think the nature of, of the frontline workers and how they communicate with people at headquarters and regional offices and things like that, is that going to change and will there be any byproducts of that? That's a good question. I, I think I would hope one byproduct is it'll become easier for them because all of us now have a better means of, of communicating virtually it's something that has, because of the pandemic, has become widespread. So I'd hope that it becomes easier for them. You know, previously in my experience, it was mostly phone calls versus these these video calls, which is nice to see interactions, see an eyeball, see a smile. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's a little easier that way. But to be honest, I think their role is more dangerous because of the effects of the pandemic. People that have to be on the front lines, that are essential workers, that are facing germs, that are facing you know driving hazards, ladder hazards. Yeah. Uh, electric hazards, any number one of these things. I think their their deskless job makes it more dangerous with the pandemic. Having said that, I think that sincerity and acknowledgement of their, you could call it a sacrifice, but at least of their of their work environment is very important. And so one thing I hope that at least we as people who are spending less time away from our desks, we can acknowledge their, their sacrifice and try to hopefully drive safety as one of the major, major things. And I think when I was at in that position of working with the remote workforce, I really drove home safety. We actually had contests and <laughs> for driving safety being one of them, we would track them with telematics on their on their vehicles. And I was often concerned after seeing, you know, speeding reports, like, whoa, that's pretty dangerous for these guys. I know they're they're doing their job to get there as fast as they can. But at the same time, I had to make a debate. Well, you guys need to go slower because we want you to get home safely. But, you know, I know productivity is one thing, but you're your life is always more important because we actually did have a situation where someone died in an accident, you know, 13 years ago from, from an accident as being a field service rep. So it was something that was front of mind for me. And that was a sincere message that they relied on and we connected with. And so I think that also built that relationship of trust. So if someone's worth trying to make a connection with a mobile field service representative, I think concerned about their safety and them getting home on time, getting home safely is a key part of establishing a relationship of trust. So de- developing policies. We did a, eventually we did a, a drawing for the person who was driving the safest and we give away gift cards, $50 um, to the top top drivers with the best driving scores every, I think it was every quarter we did it. But they were concerned about it. Like, yeah, I need my money. Hey, they, they joke with me like, hey, why did I get driven this time? Get this guy, we, you know, we'd be joking around about it. It was just another avenue for that connection. So in general, I think it's time, it's sincerity. Uh, for that connection. And like I said, your original question wasn't necessarily about that, but it led into that discussion that 
yes, the pandemic has changed some things, but focusing on their safety is always going to keep part of it for me to really establish that relationship. But hopefully it's gotten easier at the same time, more dangerous uh, with the pandemic. Well, I, so your discussion about safety, I think, is is in a similar category as training often is, which is that we tell these men and women that they need to continue to refine their skills. In your example, you were telling them that they need to be operating their vehicles as safely as possible. But in many cases, the metrics they're actually being measured by are more output you know, performance-based metrics. How many work orders did you accomplish, right? How many things did you sell? How many miles did you drive, right? All of these other things. And so they're a bit in conflict. And I'm, I'm curious in, in your experience with that, with putting such a heavy emphasis on safety, did the culture support letting off the gas a little bit? I wasn't even trying to be funny with that, but like letting off the gas <laughs> in, in, in terms of your expectations for output to free up their space in their day to also be safe? Because I, I feel like those things could be pulling in opposite directions. You know, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I was fortunate to have a great, um, we had a great boss of our, of our warranty service team over the entire group. And he was the one who actually put in down the money to support that drawing as well as, as invest in this telematic software. So I think his vision and his support of it was fine. And there's actually an understanding where we looked at a holistic view of what they did. And we took into account, you know, size of the job, the amount of work they had to do, square feet. We took into account the miles they had to drive as well as the number of jobs and outputs that they did. So it was a holistic view, also, also um, adding on their safety scores. So it was a scorecard essentially that we looked at them taking all aspects, because whether or not we were looking at safety, those aspects of how big is your job, how many jobs are you doing, um, what types of jobs are you doing came into play. And we actually had to look at them holistically to really understand how effective they were and not necessarily pin them against someone with a that had to drive like in Chicago. If you had a guy in Chicago, he'd get a lot more jobs, right? And a lot more roofs there versus a guy in Oklahoma who's driving miles and miles and miles. In, in between jobs. each job. Yeah. In between job, yeah. So having said that, we all, we based upon what we know over the years what we were doing with them, we'd always take a look at holistic view as well as safety to make sure we could understand what someone was, was doing. So you're right, they are at odds, but at the same time, we measured and aligned those incentives with their goals. Uh, to a number of different uh, aspects. I think that speaks to the importance of just the, the cultural support inside the organization to, to tackle all of these things, because at some time you just, you fill up with too many competing obligations, safety, training, job performance, right? And, and we know when you think about it strategically, of course you can't have one without the other. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of pressure for many of the men and women that, that we've been talking about here to, they're under the gun to, to perform, to get more work orders done. And so it, it does take a, a cultural openness to, to recognize that these are investments, both in training and safety and things like that, that feel in the short term, like they're not helping us get our output, but absolutely in the long term are actually ensuring success for the individual, which therefore, you know, ensure success for the company. Yeah, exactly. And I think it helped in our situation as well. We had people who, who had been promoted from within from that position all the way up to our highest ranks within the organization. They were field service reps. So they had they already gone through and done those jobs. They'd done inspections or they'd done the driving. They had the weekly output they needed to get. They'd spend the extra hours uh, to get the work done. So there was an understanding there of the difficulty that they faced, which was helpful. 
Yeah. Can, can you, can you tell our, our audience uh, about that story? That's a great way to start a story, right? SAP <laughs> and clean rooms. <laughs> um, well, SAP, for people who don't necessarily know, it's an ERP system or a manufacturing system used to produce, create, deliver, and record the production of products that are being sold. And we recently, in my current role, launched a new version of SAP from a from a different system. And so in that in that world, since we're in my current jobs in aerospace, I used to be in roofing, but I'm in an aerospace industry. They have clean rooms where they need to make sure that the products are made aren't going to get dirty because that can cause issues when someone's in space. It's an interesting change from a dirty roof to a very clean yeah, uh, aerospace very, product. Very different. But, but because of that, there was a physical separation. There were walls, there were doors from the entire group. And actually to get in there, you had to put on this whole white pad and and I think you even had to have a mask on, which wasn't a big deal in the pandemic, but you had to have a mask on and get the booties on and everything. And it was different even training someone within that physical manufacturing realm within a clean room than it was a person outside those walls. For some reason, the message was not getting through the people in the clean room because there was less time with the trainer spent with them. So I decided, hey, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to get that little clean room suit on. I'm going to go help them and answer their questions. And that was during the week of Go Live. I think it's a lesson learned because I realized myself it's important to make a distinction and jump over that physical wall. But the failure was we made the process too difficult because even though we had this new technology that would have provided a big advantage for uh, the real advantage we were trying to get with the technology we're teaching was to track their work closely rather than estimate it because then we can have a better idea of the margin, right? And it's, it's similar to a mobile workforce. Tell me exactly what you did, when you did it, and why. But in this extent, if it's hard to track that, it's it's a it's more of a waste of time. So we spent a lot of time, got my clean suit on, my white suit on every now and again to go in there. And then eventually we decided to say, you know what, these people are working very hard. We need to estimate it because this is too difficult for them. And so the failure was we didn't train them well enough beforehand that they didn't want to adopt it. But still, what I learned from that lesson was it's important to go beyond that physical barrier to try and meet them. And they were greatly appreciative and sincere of it. And they gave it more, more of a chance when I was in there. We perhaps needed to have more people in there early on because we waited two or three days to get someone in that clean room. So, Yeah. when <clears throat> It's interesting. One of the things you were saying, and I, I want to make sure that I'm understanding this right, it sounds like the, the change that you were trying to implement was actually costing them a bunch of effort. Is it also true that they weren't really the beneficiaries of that added effort? Like it wasn't really, it was just extra work for them and they weren't getting any benefit exactly. from that extra effort? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was main benefit to the accountant and people who are creating routers to track and create plans and estimate a production, but it was not a direct benefit for them. And it was hard, very hard for them to connect that benefit back to how it would play out in their daily role. So there wasn't really a whole lot of in it for them except more work. Uh, except for generally overall, the production would be better planned and they didn't connect to that. So I think there was still some more we could have done to sell that story. Um, but in general, we just switched to a different way of tracking. Yeah. So it was a difficult one. So I, I hear from so many folks with change management backgrounds that it's important to communicate the, you know, what's in it for them to the end users that will be affected by this. But I, I've, you know, after doing uh, whatever number of episodes we've done now, I've come to realize that sometimes the people that we're asking to make the change, there may not be a direct benefit to them. That the what's in it for them um, 
if we're being honest with ourselves and with them, maybe a, a you know, uh, a bigger picture benefit for the company. So we may be asking this worker to do 10 more tasks in their day or fill out this checklist or, you know, all these other things that we ask them to do, especially with the new technology that we may be implementing. But the net effect mm -hmm. to them may actually be that their job takes a little bit longer, that they're a little bit slower. And, um, but, but the reason that we may be asking for that is like in your case, to have better financial data so that we can estimate better in the future, to have better reporting, to have better inventory tracking, right? To have all these other benefits, but they may, mm -hmm. may not necessarily directly relate to them. So how do we, how do we close that gap and say, Hey, what's in it for you is really nothing, but <laughs> here's what's in it for the company. How that's gotta be a hard message to deliver. Any, any advice you can give us on, on how we may want to go about handling a situation like that? No, that's great. And I think, I think it's something most people deal with all the time. How would it make people do hard things that benefit the overall, the overall company versus an individual? And the more I've thought about it from that experience, if I had to do that again, I'd get the plant supervisor in a white suit and have him come and touch on again, the importance of that. Because the, again, research has shown coming from ProSci that an active invisible sponsor is the greatest indicator of success, the greatest, the greatest um, multiplier of a change. So if that person can come in and say, hey, I needed to do this, for this reason in the company and it's tied to your annual goals would you please do it for me as a as a you know if they made a personal appeal to someone if it was that important would you respond to that justin if, if someone came to you yeah i know you're a ceo but yeah no i position, I, yeah. I i do think that's really helpful and, and i think that speaks to the transparency required in the culture in the organization and it's, mm -hmm. it's something that I've come to realize, uh, I think when we started off in this podcast endeavor, I, I think we really felt like we were going to probably be talking more about tools and tactics and, you know, kind of, I don't know, techniques, you know, to, to being successful. And, and I think a lot of this comes down to some very basic human things about having a culture, having trust, you know, that same person that you just talked about having a, an active invisible sponsor, if that active invisible sponsor was not honest and credible and had, did not have demonstrated, um, you know, previous positive behavior with those stakeholders, they could be visible all day long, but it's not going to help. Right. Um, mm -hmm. in fact, the chit chat, when that person walks out of the room is he's lying to us again. Right. <laughs> so it's, I, I, and, I, and I don't say that to diminish that statement that, you know, that you were drawing from ProSci. It makes perfect sense. But I think a level up from that is that it's got to be supported by a culture of, of trust and credibility around all of those folks. And um, otherwise, all of these techniques are going to fall flat, is, is my take. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree with completely. And that's part of the reason I said connection. If there's a credible connection with yeah. the, with the sponsor or, or the leader of an organization, if they're, if they have integrity, if, yep. if they're open and honestly saying this is difficult, I know it sucks or, or whatever it may be, but if they're really listening to the individual, their word and their direction can come off across more powerfully. And I think that's why, you know, go to these Harvard business review articles and these different articles in the times that always come back to leadership being about culture. It seems very simple. If it were simple, I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't be a I wouldn't be a change manager, right? And so, 
I honestly feel like a lot of what I teach and a lot of what I do is simple in theory, but difficult to implement in practice. So anybody that has methodologies or experience or wisdom they can share with me, hey, give me an email, maybe Justin can provide it. But I think there's just a lot to be learned about dealing with humans in general. And that's, that's the joy of change management is looking at the human side of what we do. Uh, because in, in the end of the day, we're all working to live, not living to work. Exactly. Well, and that's, I mean, I think you just summarized a, a big part of the reason that we wanted to start this podcast and why I continue to enjoy, you know, every episode we get to create here is that this, our stated purpose was raising the awareness of the unique needs of the men and women on the front lines and how they're often on the receiving ends of very important and exciting digital transformation initiatives. Um, but we have to really be deliberate about how we think about them and the change that's going to impact them and how there, there just might be some circumstances that make um, their situation a little bit different than you know rolling out an ERP solution to the accounting team. And I don't know why I always bang on account, the accounting team, but uh, they, you know, they have a different education background. They have a different working profile, right? There are a lot of things that are different about that. And um, I, I think we owe it to the men and women in the field to really just be more thoughtful about how these changes are going to impact them. And, and even if we have to be honest, you know, something that I've learned from you today is just the, the impact of culture and leadership and thinking about maybe if we have some deficiencies there, then no matter what fancy techniques we try to apply, um, maybe we need to fix the leadership and culture issues first before we try to implement that change. Otherwise it's going to fall flat. Yeah, and that, that gave me another thought, building off what you said, the accountants and the white collar workers like myself, like you, we have a chance to interact with those leaders, right? We have, mm -hmm. just because we're in the same office. Right. So if there was a way to perhaps make a movie or a small video from a, a leader, which I've actually done, we've had leaders before ERP implementations, our CEO make a message directed at those manufacturing workers who were launching the software. That was yeah. our attempt to make that connection. Is there something like that you can do to make a personal plea? I mean, a video is a video, it's not personal, but it's an attempt to acknowledge uh, the efforts of individuals. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it, it, all these things are intertwined, right? The integrity and credibility of the person delivering the message and how they deliver the message and you know what it is that they're saying in that message are, are all going to affect the success of that communication, right? And yeah, exactly. um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good example. And I, I love the idea of using video for that purpose because I think it conveys things that just can't be communicated in a you know, a, a tent on a, you know, tent pop-up, you know, uh, sign or, or on the back of a door or on the bulletin board or something like that, or on digital signage or whatever. Um, the I, toilet I poster. Yeah. It doesn't come through the same, you know, <laughs> exactly. You are not the first person to mention, uh, posters in the bathroom on this podcast. So that's, that's becoming a, a bit of a common theme and, and it's, I'm just adding that to the list of many things that I've learned being the host of this podcast that I had never thought about before. So that was really good. Um, believe it or not, we're already coming up, uh, close to the end of time here. And, and before I let you go, I'd like to ask, you know, what you think is the contribution that you've made as a change management professional that you are most proud of? Oh, wow. To think back. Uh, well, I think the hardest, one of the hardest things of transition in my mind, well, there are two things, communication and training. So my, my ability to organize a training 
to organize skills and make it relatable to individuals is something that I enjoy. And I think that makes a big contribution as well as helping others recognize the need to communicate frequently and often when there's a transition, uh, mainly because we get, we all get bogged down, we all get overworked, but it's pausing to think, how can you make something visible to everybody? How can you tell them what's going to happen? I mean, it sounds like a small principle, but to have someone pause and say, you didn't tell everyone what was happening. That's your role as a leader. You didn't tell everybody why it was important. It seems like very simple things, but that can be overlooked. So I guess my biggest uh, example, or perhaps my biggest accomplishment is just helping people recognize simple things that make a difference to people. I guess I'm a simple guy, but breaking it down to help people understand what we're doing. If I can do that with the projects I work on so that people can understand it, it makes all the difference in the world. So for those of you who are listening to this podcast and trying to help, just consider people's feelings, consider that they don't know why you're doing it and they didn't hear about it. So if you can make someone hear it, have them understand why it's happening and help them help them understand when and why it will be happening, it makes all the difference for people. Because I've had experiences where someone got a, um, excuse me, a panic attack from the transitions we've gone through and the hospital came in, you know, the, the ambulance came in and had to treat them for the panic attack. And it can be that real. It can be that, it can be just that uh, taxing and stressful to people. So helping people be able to relax through transition in a smooth way so that they're not stressed out to the max is a very personally rewarding, gratifying feeling. So I think that's probably the best ones I have. I, I think you did a great job of communicating that. And I think those are definitely things, you know, worthy of um, recognition. And, and so I'm, I'm really glad you shared them. And, and I, I think what you just talked about with the anxiety and, and the unfortunate experience of, of having one of your, you know, stakeholders, um, you know, experience panic attack. I, I think it just speaks to the realness of the anxiety and stress that these changes can put on some of the people on the receiving end of that. And I think back over 20 years of rolling out projects, and I've seen countless examples of reluctant adopters of technology, and I just thought they were being stubborn. I don't, I didn't understand it. And I, I wish I could go back. I really do wish I could go back and, and redo, just, you know, change my perspective to be able to go back with the perspective that I have now and, and recognize um, why they may be reacting the way that they are to this change. Um, sometimes I think some people were just stubborn. Then that's that's part of it. There's going to be some percentage of those folks that are that are just going to fit that uh, profile. But I think a lot of folks were genuinely nervous, anxious, fearful about the changes that were coming down the pipe, and um, they associated that with the the devices that we were handing them, right, or the new technology mm-hmm. that we were putting in. And it wasn't really necessarily about the device, but it was just about all of that change that was happening at the same time. And why are our leaders handing us these things? And, and why are they trying to automate these things that I used to do manually, right? All those other fears that come with that. And um, I, I can't go back in time, but if I could, I'd love to take another swing at some of those things and see if I could just take a handful of those people to the side and say, let me explain this to you, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and help you understand that this is actually here to help not hurt you and, and you know really bring them on. So can't go back in time. But again, the purpose of this show is to help for, for us here, you and me on this, this call today and, and all the others that, that might be listening to just say, let's make sure that as we embark on new projects going forward, 
that we look for those opportunities to really look for those fears and anxieties and um, see how we can bring a personal connection. At the end of the day, it's only going to help with the, the technology uh, adoption side. And we're probably going to relieve quite a bit of stress from some of our colleagues, you know, that are, that are out there working in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's good stuff. Trent, I got to wrap it up. Um, but I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Um, enjoy sharing a couple of the stories. I think my favorite was the, the, um, the clean room and the SAP story. Cause that's the first time we've ever talked about clean rooms on the podcast. So there's the first for everything, but, uh, but thanks for sharing that story. And, and thanks for joining me today. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, to our audience, thank you for spending 45 minutes with us today on the show. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. And if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And remember that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests. Uh, to have on the show. So if you or someone else you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, we are starting to really build up some uh, referrals, which has been fantastic on the show. So um, if you know of anybody out there that would make a great guest on the show, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or their story. Either way, we'd love to get them on the show and we'll see you on the next episode. Trent, thanks for your time today.